So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Thank you for all your feedback on last week's show. I am pleased to report that Ollie Pitt's fictional alter ego, John Fisher, captured your imaginations in a way I couldn't have predicted a non-existent man with a name as boring as John Fisher possibly could. Uh, Ben has been in touch to say, I've worked in telecommunications for 13 years, so I listened with interest to Ollie Pitt's robocalls challenge. All he needs to do is share fictional John Fisher's number with so-called sweatshop call centres. PPI and road traffic accidents are a great place to start. (laughs) Gordon, meanwhile, advises if John Fisher wants dodgy phone calls, he's not real, Gordon. John Fisher is not real. Um, Then all he needs to do is sign up to Gumtree and post an advert for anything. Add your number as a contact option and there you go. Happened in days for me. Uh, Whereas uh, some of you have been in touch, obviously, about how to block robocalls, uh, Jimmy tweeted us some advice at The Modern Man. Uh, He says, my solution is to make robo a contact in your phone. Then when you get a new junk call from a visible number, you simply add that number to your contact robo, then block that contact in your phone settings. Uh, That is a keeper, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, Right, this week's show is about journalism. Well, I was going to say it's about journalism. It's it's really, it's about journalism. Uh, The depressing process by which many modern newsrooms generate clickbait, basically, based on other people's content, and it all ends up becoming a massive echo chamber, a bit problematic for those of us who are keen on uh, truth and original reporting. Um, I interview a lady who used to work for Russia Today, RT. Uh, Scarcely a more controversial newsroom in the UK than that one. And the interview with her takes you right inside their editorial process. It's very enlightening. And I think, rather like last week's interview, which was about sport, but not really, I think you don't need to work in the media to find this an interesting chat. This is about how we in the modern world receive our news these days. And if you've been following the news, you'll know that is something of a hot topic. Um, So yeah, in this episode, you will learn what editorial mellowing is. Uh, You'll learn the time at night after which you should never text anyone on a dating app. And you'll learn the very best way to clean your cyber skin. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man, Farty, anything that is disruptive is the line. Disruption, propaganda and fake news inside RT's newsroom. Some of them you can even turn inside out. And Alex Fox says sex toys aren't dirty if you know how to clean them. 
But first, let's talk trends with a man who's just eaten a Padron pepper and said, now I feel like I've had my roughage. It's Ollie Pearce. You eat the whole thing. I break the rules, man. We're here to talk trends. It's the zeitgeist. And that might account for why, Ollie, we are sitting in the middle of the afternoon in a trendy burger joint in Shoreditch. Explain to our listeners where we are. We're in a place called Dirty Bones. Mm-hmm. It's very plush. It's like a cross between an old Victorian pub and a sort of butcher's. I don't know where you got your ideas of butchery. Well, because no, of the, the, the tiles. No, the tiles, have yeah. Tiles pubs had them. tiles. Old Cockney Knees uptight pubs had yeah, yeah, tiles. Yeah, okay. So we're here because your quest last week, set by Manfan Mira, mm-hmm. was to taste the Beyond Burger. As a way of having a meaty experience, but not impacting the environment. Okay, so it's not even necessarily about not killing cows. It's about think about the effect that agriculture has upon the earth and making something out of vegetables is easier. Meat production has a huge impact on the environment. So they, it uses loads and loads of water, loads of landmass, a huge amount of energy. So these guys are trying to create meat in a way that doesn't use so many resources. And that's the thing then, because I had vaguely seen on social media this story trending that in America they'd sold out of it on the shops or whatever. That was the product, wasn't it? Yeah, so it? the Beyond Burger completely sold out in America. It was selling out in Whole Foods, they had it in mainly. Yeah, and, oh, yeah, and it's got like tech investors, hasn't it? Like Biz Stone's got shares in it or something. Yeah, loads of Silicon Valley guys are involved in this business. It's so weird, isn't it? Is it weird? Well, it's weird because, yeah, yes, because they make uh, mobile phone applications. They, they don't make plant meat. No, but they love innovation, and this is an innovation. Yeah. But anyway, yes. that burger is coming to the UK, and you're going to start seeing it in August in Honest Burger. And you'll also be able to get them in Tesco from August. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But when you Google Beyond Burger, yeah. it turns out there's a whole bunch of them. So there's another one called the Impossible Burger. So this whole bleeding thing is really weird to me. It seems to me like this isn't actually about taste, it's about Instagram. Because if it's just about how it looks, it's just about synthesising, making it look as much like real beef. That you know, Based on what you've talked about before and the way social media actually impacts the way that people behave... It's about either virtue signalling and tell everyone that you're not eating meat, or it's about literally, look, it's bleeding like a cow. The imagery that they use... It doesn't taste like blood, presumably, right? Well, I don't know, I haven't tasted one yet. No, but it's not, it's to look like blood. They're not trying to appeal to vegetarians, they are trying to appeal to meat eaters, and part of eating meat, you know, I used to eat meat, it was nice to sort of... It remains nice, Ollie. Seriously. Yes, I'm sure it does. But If if I know now that by eating Five Guys once a month for the rest of my life, I die six months sooner, I'm fine with that. I'd sign that contract. Anyway, we're not here for the Beyond Burger. We're not here for the Impossible Burger. We are here for the Moving Mountains Flexitarian B12 Burger. B12? Yep. What does the B stand for? Burger. (laughs) No, the B12 is a vitamin, vitamin B12. And you usually get it in red meats. It's associated with red meats. I see. And in this burger... It's been added, and the idea is that it contains the same nutrients as a beef burger. Okay, so there's three rivals that are all trying to produce meat-free burgers and tap into this trend. Moving Mountains are a British company, and they were started up by a chap called Simeon van der Molen. Okay, so actually this is the British rival to those two burgers we've been hearing all about on social media. Yeah, and I heard about this, and I got in touch with him and said, can we try it? And he... Organise this, and here we are. So it's just arrived on our table. Yeah, it's um, delightfully luridly yellow. So in that way that modern trendy sort of hipster burgers are, it's got like a kind of mac and cheese type cheesy topping on the top. But actually, that isn't cheese. It is, according to the menu, their signature vegan mac and cashew cheese. Ooh, mac then, and cashew. Then it says smoky mushroom short rib. So in other words, something that's a bit like pork but made out of a mushroom. Mm-hmm and espresso spiked barbecue sauce uh, but the main thing is as you say the meat which is 
a plant-based B12 burger. Now, they're so confident here at Dirty Bones that we are going to like the vegan Mac Daddy that they've actually supplied us, and I am eyeing it up in a quasi-sexual way with the original Mac Daddy as well, which is the name of their... Well, it's their posh Big Mac, isn't it, basically? It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a real meat one here, and I know you're a vegetarian, so I'm not going to make you eat it. No, But it will thanks. go to waste unless I eat all of it. Uh, and we have a vegan Mac Daddy to try as well. Ollie Pitt, are you ready to take the plunge? I am. Now, anyone who has listened to Season 1, Episode 3, America's Best Burgers... <laughs> will know that I'm not that good at describing the taste of burgers. Although, no. to be fair, I was jet-lagged and travelling around San Francisco and drunk when we recorded that. <laughs> so I'll try my best, but Ollie, I'm going to rely on your powers of description here to explain what it's like to okay. eat. That's why all of my beard. Mmm. Okay. I'm going to say it straight away. It's really nice. It doesn't taste anything like me. It tastes like a mushroom. So. Am I wrong? I've had many, many veggie burgers, as you know. Yeah, so this is the opinion of someone who has had no meat past his lips for months, yeah. And this is a particularly exceptional one. Yeah. It is delicious. It's really, really nice. Mm-hmm. From my distant memories of meat, I'm not 100% convinced. There is that, I want to say soya, like it's, there's yeah. that slight planty It's taste. actually, I'd call it an aftertaste, except you get it when you put it in your mouth. It's yes. like a pre-taste. Yeah. You put it in your mouth and there's this odd pre-taste of... I don't know what this is, but it tastes a bit odd. And then when you taste the whole thing and you get the cheese and the burger and the saltiness, then you're sort of satisfied, aren't you, that you've eaten something nice? I'm I'm sorry, I've got to have a taste of the actual burger that's sitting right there. Looking at it, to look at it, it definitely looks more like meat than other veggie burgers. And that's just so fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, there is absolutely no, no competition at all. I wish that the vegan one tasted as nice as that. Even visually, the comparison is, like, you can tell the difference. Oh. Yours is seeping fat. It's got all of that meaty juice coming out of it. Mine gives you happiness, doesn't it? That's the thing. Your well, no, I'm happy that an animal hasn't died. Sure, it's a different kind of happiness, isn't y- yeah. it? Yeah, you're happy that you are eating a murdered A delicious animal. thing. You're just going to sit there and eat. I'm just going to watch you. Yeah, fine. Tell me some other stuff about burgers, <laughs> whatever. Well, do you want to know what's in it? Yeah, first? well, fine. Fill you the literally time. don't care, do you? Well, I'm just eating. Just tell me whatever you want. They've used uh, mushrooms, pea protein, potato protein, wheat and soy, beetroot, coconut oil, and that added vitamin B12. Just by the by, I've ordered a side as well, which is vegetarian, because I thought, you know, since we are reporting on behalf of vegans and vegetarian assisting, so they do fried aubergine in buffalo sauce. Sounds like my kind of thing. Do you want to try some? That's amazing. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's sensational. See that? That doesn't need to be made of beef to be good, but burgers do. That's my conclusion. <laughs> yes, but... There's a wider point, isn't there? The trend isn't that they're trying to sell veggie burgers. The point is they're trying to get meat eaters to sort of every once in a while go, do you know what? I'm just going to have one of those. It's an environmental message. I do get the philosophy of having meat-free days in the week, and I totally do that. I'll have vegetarian pasta at home because I don't miss meat on a pasta or pizza, but I just kind of do when it's between a bun. But what if it got to a point, because they're also sort of experimenting with lab-grown meat. Yeah. So what if it got to the point where the meat was so good, you literally... Yeah, it was, I'm up for it. You just go I'm up for it. it. I wanted this to be that good. It just wasn't quite. But I, I, I'm now curious to try the Impossible One and the Beyond One as well. Just to see what the difference is. Yeah, but well, no, to see if there is one that really would make me make the switch. Because obviously it is better. I'd rather not kill things, never mind the environmental impact. Uh, okay, right. Time for your challenge for next week's show, he says, picking his phone up from a delicious gooey mess of he's, buffalo he's sauce. He's literally rushing through it just because he <laughs> wants to eat his burger. This is going to go cold. Uh, it's from <laughs> Manfan Debs, who says, I would like Ollie P to try living on... A prayer? No. Although, if you could live out the lyrics of that song, that would be an amazing challenge. 
a houseboat. I don't know if you know this. I am a qualified sailor. The trend for millennials in particular to start living on houseboats, when that used to be the preserve of basically old people and weirdos, is that it's difficult to get your foot on the housing ladder. It's difficult to get property that you can reliably rent in cities. Mm -hmm. And actually there's a boom now in the price of renting houseboats. So so whilst you may have been on a boat before... I can sail... Whatever. This isn't about your holidays... (laughs) This is about you stepping into the shoes of someone who actually lives on one. And you have to go to the toilet and go to Sainsbury's and get an internet connection. Okay. Aye, aye, Captain. Ahoy. Sailor. Hello, man fans. I'm Leanne Hickey, Digital Marketing Officer, and in my spare time, a renowned online dating advisor. And these are my tips for how to nail online dating. Tip number one, never open with a question whose answer can easily be found on a CV. Examples include, where are you from and what do you do? Don't fall into the trap of asking someone how they are or what they did at the weekend. Save that kind of chat for the water cooler. The truth is people love talking about themselves. So go ahead and ask them a tailor-made question that responds directly to one of their pictures. If they're eating a stack of pancakes, ask them to recommend their favourite brunch spot in town. If they're in front of the Eiffel Tower, ask them what their favourite moment from their trip to Paris was. Or if they're at loads of different festivals, ask them what their most outrageous festival attire was. Tip number two. Never message someone after 10pm. Any message sent, or for that matter received after 10pm, is almost 100% alcohol fueled. Making brunch plans for 10 a.m. at 12 p.m. when you're four pints in is a recipe for failure. Trust me, my friend is a terror for this particular habit. Yes, my friend. Tip number three. Don't be shy. Let people see your beautiful face. You live in a busy world. People do not have time to diligently scroll through your group pictures trying to guess which one of your 10 strong posse is you. Neither do they have time to decipher what you would look like if you weren't pulling that bizarre pose. While we're at it, can we all collectively agree to leave Snapchat filters where they belong on Snapchat? Why not let your first picture be a nice, clear image of your face? That way we all know where we stand and nobody is wasting precious milliseconds of their time. I could be better put to use catching up on Love Island Side note, all that being said, do include one group picture, just so people know that you do, in fact, have some friends. Uh, If you want to know more, you can follow me on Twitter, or even better, Bumble, Tinder, or Hinge. Thanks to Leanne for her life hacks, sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. It's an app where you can discover, subscribe, and enjoy podcasts. Podcast Lounge saves time by downloading new episodes in the background, so everything is ready to go when you need it, even when you're on the move. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, where do you get your news? Perhaps the TV, perhaps social media, maybe print... Probably, like me, it's a combination of all three. But there's a danger, isn't there, we're learning in the last few years, in seeing all of the outlets who use those platforms as equal. 
Joanna Romero is a freelance journalist who's written for titles including Vice, The Independent and The New Statesman. She's got a background in left-wing activism, so her first full post was at the Morning Star before she took a job on the London web team of RT, Russia Today, the Moscow-based, Kremlin-backed news station who are, it's fair to say, controversial. Just last week, they were found to have breached broadcasting standards in a programme hosted by Alex Salmond. What was it like the first time Joanna walked into their newsroom? I mean, first thing that I noticed is that I knew some of the people who worked there. And that does say something about RT, because one of my colleagues was someone that I knew out of the activism remit. A couple of other people I knew through journalism, and they did not necessarily work on my department, but they worked nearby, on desks nearby. So it kind of felt a bit slightly bigger office. You know, there's studios rather than just, you know, we're going to print in a minute, but it still felt pretty familiar in a sense. And perhaps that was something that lured me in far more than uh, had it felt like just a new job and a complete new kid on the block, perhaps I would have been a bit more aware from things earlier on. I originally went in with my print journalist hat on and thinking, I'm going to search for the story. I'm going to, you know, I had my little contact book on me. I'm going to call my contacts and this is how it's going to be done. Quickly, I realized that they wanted something far more fast-paced, far more based on something broke on Twitter, let's say, right within a set, within a minute and a half, and that's how it goes. What were they looking for, do you think? What is getting us a lot of clicks? What is getting people talking at 8 a.m. in the morning in London, in Manchester, across Britain? And that means looking for stories that are trending on social media, across social media. The second thing that they want are things that will resound with our readers, which will be people more often than not who disagree with Western status quo policies, right? So anything from being against Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen to thinking Putin is the leader of the free world. I mean, because that's a stereotype, right, about RT. Our readership will be pretty wide, and it goes from bog-standard lefties who just don't agree with Theresa May's foreign policy to people who think Bashar al-Assad is a great leader of the free world as well, you know, a bit like Putin or something like that. And, and a lot of right-wing readers actually as well it's people who want an alternative to the mainstream news agenda isn't it yeah yeah people who look at rt as you know people who for some reason feel disillusioned with the bbc and therefore they search an rt the antithesis to that where it becomes problematic of course is the bbc makes mistakes but their editorial mission is about providing as close as possible the truth if your mission statement is to provide an alternative to the truth, you can see why that's problematic. It doesn't matter that the statements that you're providing might be true in themselves. <laughs> it's that they're clearly not the whole picture. And as a broadcast organization, yeah. immediately that's a compromise, isn't it? It's almost like looking at things through a different angle. But also that angle is obscuring some of the facts that should be part of that story, right? And the BBC might do that sometimes from the other side of the coin. But I still think that on certain topics does not do it as much. This not, does not do it as flagrantly, I guess. It's just the way in which they focus very loudly uh, and often very fantastically on, on the side that they support. I mean, the amount of times in which you're quoting the Russian embassy 
verbatim and there is no question of is this really what's happening you know you just quote the Russian embassy that's that I mean if we think about Russia today's history it was launched as one could call it propaganda and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it was launched as an attempt to portray Russia in a different way from I think the, the head of RT at the time said, you know, something along the lines of people think of Russia as a place of poverty, communism and and drunks. And we're trying to change that into showing how Russia is a modern state. And to a degree, it does that. It just has in the span of the last 10 years, you know, that modern state is very different from a Western liberal modern state. And that's what they're trying to portray, you know, like Russia as an influencer, as a, a, a country with, with prowess, not in an old school, you know, Cold War imagery, but in a 21st century way. And, and that has kind of crystallized into some sort of, you know, Russian troll bots and, <laughs> and fake news. I don't think RT is particularly unique in writing a story or, or building up stories from a very prismatic kind of, you know, just one side of, of the story strategy. I think they've become very blatant at doing that and very hysterical sometimes, isn't it? A lot of the Western media makes a huge fuss about RT in a way that, you know, people would often ask me, friends and, and, and colleagues from other news channels would often ask me, you know, how is it over there? Do you have a direct line to Moscow? And I think people highly overestimate the influence that RT has within Russian public affairs or, or foreign affairs. Like, we're there to serve as, as a channel for news. There isn't really a lot more. Whether that does actually influence audiences, it's, it's a different question. Direct links to the Kremlin. I've never heard any phone calls being put straight to Vladimir Putin. But did you get a sense that some of the decisions about which news stories you'd be covering and the order in which you would be covering them were coming not from the office, but from Moscow? So our sub-editors, so the people that you put stories through to check if there is mistakes or if, I don't know, like there's a whole paragraph missing or, you know, images that you should put on the story and so on were in Russia. So every day we would have to, every time you finish the story, I don't know how it is now, I've left nearly a year ago, but certainly at the time you'd have to send stories through. And that's absolutely fine. I, I did meet those people and a lot of them were, were great fellow, you know, professionals in, in journalism. Um, but it kind of made us sometimes feel like, A, why are we sending things for so far away to people who don't know what's, you know, again, if you're covering something happening on the streets of London, why am I sending this information to someone who's in Moscow? And what kind of corrections did they make? More often than not, actually, you'd think because, you know, we would never write something as controversial as, you know, like Vladimir Putin is a despot or anything like that. It's an interesting and that says something again about RT, like there is a, there's a the Russian way of thinking is at odds with the people who read or watch Russia today. Because most of the people, certainly in Britain and the States, who watch Russia today or read the website are not Russians. And the Russian society in many respects is quite conservative, actually, socially conservative. And so you sometimes had to write stories that included, you know, references to sex or references to drugs or stuff like that, that then would be mellowed, edited out changed even if they changed quite radically the full the whole purpose of the story which was how to get clicks out of this I, I wrote a few stories about sex robots 
Mm-hmm. That was a story I found rather than found somewhere else about a vibrator that was also an alarm clock. And I thought, this is so funny. You know, we'll get us some clicks. It was an early morning story, you know, and not much is happening. It was just being launched. Let's do it. And I've asked the company that was selling these alarm clock vibrators for some pictures. And I put two of them on the story. One was just of the device. And the other one was of the device with just a drawing. So it's not an actual picture, a drawing of how you would use it, I guess. But it was pretty, you know, PG. Uh, and they, they said, no, you can't, put that. <laughs> you can't put that picture in. And honestly, if you look at it, it looks like an ad for a panty liner or something like mm. that. It was really not sexual in any way, but it was still too blatant. And, and did it did well. The story did well at the time. And did their conservatism then extend to censoring or manipulating parts of the stories that actually, generally speaking, a left-leaning audience in the UK would welcome? I mean, I'm thinking here, for example, about, I don't know, mixed-race relationships or gay relationships. Did, did those get yes. mellowed? Uh, LGBT stories were the other one in which I felt it was very subtle. It's very subtle stuff, um, which, again, is in line with Russian foreign policy, you know, like... Vladimir Putin has said several times homosexuality is not banned in Russia but we are a conservative society and that is how it feels when you're when you're in the office like it's not going to be censored but it's going to be you know like the edges are going to be brushed in a way that for us here in in Britain feel like you're actually silencing some of the points here which means I mean what would be a would it be a problem to have a picture of even two men holding hands do you think Possibly. I'm trying to think if, if I've ever had that, but yeah, certainly two men kissing. Right. That would probably not go on. You know, I think people think there's a strong hand of Russia on you, and I don't really felt that. I have to say, like, you know, for all the criticisms I have of it, my main criticisms of our team are actually criticisms that probably apply to the way in which I do journalism rather than to the politics trickling through into, you know, the news. The let's get it out quick regardless of what's there let's not think about what's being said here let's not analyze this for a couple of minutes just put it out 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 come on quick 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 and it became problematic one of the last stories i i covered was grenfell and they sent me to the site to do a facebook live wow. and i never felt as and i know that a lot of you know broadcasting teams do that too but i never felt as inappropriate and out of place and maybe that says something more about me than about journalism I don't know or says something about both of us journalism and me you know it took me ages to build up what I would say lack of scruples to go up to people with a phone and go tell me to the camera what you think how do you feel about this you know when the tower was still on fire when there's still neighbors that you don't know where they are and gone missing when people are still actually in a state of pre-trauma and yeah, I just felt like I'm, I'm feeding into that culture of immediate, rapid, unscrutinized feeling of what you put out there is, is inconsequential, which is not, you know. And, you know, you could say that about a series of other of other events that we covered, uh, even from the office itself. Yeah, I'm curious about that thing of seeing something on social media and then putting a story up about it. I mean, there can't be much fact checking in that two minutes. Is there any? More often than not, it's do the story, ask the questions later, yeah. right? And that's a problem. You know, how can you put two views to balance things out in a minute? You mm. know, like I barely can respond to a, one of your questions in a minute, let alone when it's something quite important like that. Where are the fundamental questions of journalism about who, what, where, when, and how, and why? 
mm. is this happening? That doesn't happen in a minute. And then as part of the web team, presumably you'd see some of your stories that you'd written then in themselves getting traction online. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I one of the other things we, we sometimes do would be we would look through stories uh, on other tabloids or on tabloids that would appeal to the RT readership. And then we would rewrite them with a couple of comments from Russian friendly or just RT friendly. It doesn't have to be Russian friendly, RT friendly commentators. And that's it. And you rehash a piece of news that might have been from one or two days ago even. And then to see those very same stories that are already being rehashed, rehashed again by sometimes even the same publication we took the story from. <laughs> and it became the sort of, I, honestly, it feels like Alice falling through the rabbit hole. Mm. Like what? is going on so it's not news nothing no, has happened no exactly. all that's happened is that you've seen someone else said a thing happen you've said it's happened yeah. again and then they've reported that you said yes. that they said it absolutely and again you know the other publications are just as guilty i mean what then becomes even more disconcerting for me or it did become and this is one of the reasons why i felt at one point very depressed working there was that i wanted to cover stories in depth what i would call journalism and it turns out that a lot of stories that I wanted to do, particularly on camera, which I do a few, did a few, I had to do out of my free time. Mm. I could use the RT channel to, to, to do it, to publicize it, to record whatever. Something about, for instance, a story that I cared a lot about was a, a story about the NHS nurses. As a Portuguese person, I knew that a lot of Portuguese nurses had, during you know, 2008, the crisis and all that, moved to Britain to work here. So a big chunk of nurses in London are of Greek, Spanish and Portuguese citizenship. And the question was, what happens now that Brexit is coming? And this should be a story that would be encouraged by my editor for me to do. I had the sources, I just needed to go out there, have the few hours time to interview and then put the piece together. Mm. Simple as that. I had to basically do it all in my free time. It's not like they weren't supportive. They said, yeah, go ahead, do the story as long as you also do all the other stories that you have to do, which are the ones that they want to put out that get a lot of clicks. Which is the clickbait. How many stories did you put out a day, on a typical day? They would probably say that I was a very slow writer. <laughs> uh, so the average story, at least at a time, would be about 500 words once it's finished. I would do around three to four a day, but the more the better. And the more clickbaitier, the better. And I, again, I, you know, I feel bad about the whole question of like clickbait. Again, it's the question about for everyone about where's journalism going because people know that you know the way that you assess uh, the success of any news outlet is by how much you know audience it has so the easiest way to check that is by many how many clicks you get and then obviously the immediate thought process is how can we get stories that get people to click on them were you surprised so, having worked at the morning star where you did get to go out and interview people it's not just about using your own time to do it or who's paying for it were you surprised that journalists at RT weren't going out and being journalists, that they were sitting in the office, that they were looking at press releases and stories coming down the wires and not doing their own reporting. Did that surprise you? Yes, although I should also say that it's slightly different for broadcasting news. So broadcasting reporters or correspondents did go out. How much they could go out and spread out their portfolio other than just kind of the same story and with the same parameters over and over again is a question. And of course, I did hear people who complained about that, colleagues of mine within the broadcasting team who, okay, we go out at the end of the day, we've done this story three times and we're not allowed to do much more. I mean, actually a good example for that, it's the migrant, quote unquote, migrant crisis, right? And when Calais was, the, the refugee camp was being dismantled and how that was a big story for a while. 
And I remember some broadcasting colleagues complaining that, yes, I go to Calais to cover that story, but then all I have to do all the time is show migrants coming in. And again, the, the one that has caught the public attention regarding this in RT was about the fate of that Malaysian aircraft. Mm. And a presenter actually walked out on air about that, didn't they? Yeah, they just this was before said, my time. But sure. Yeah. But they essentially said, I can't say this anymore. Yeah. There's yeah. a feeling it's that... It's a good example of how you, know, how you end up finding yourself very conflicted about a story because you're only allowed to show one side of it. When you say the side of it, the, the Russian side of it, present, or of any of these stories presented through RT, isn't necessarily... Russia is innocent. This must be caused by something else. The side of the story is, let's disrupt the story. Let's change the narrative that says Russia is guilty. And that's a slightly different, more pernicious thing, isn't it? So when I started at RT, was the week after, the Monday after the Brexit referendum. Having come from the Morning Star, where there was an editorial line that was pro-leave, I had a curiosity about whether, up until that point, RT had had a, a line. So I asked... One of my line managers, you know, what was the uh, the RT line on, on, on Brexit? And he said, for RT, anything that is disruptive is the line. And I, I think, in retrospect, that's a perfect summary of how to do news for RT. Is it doesn't really matter if it's left, right, center, if it's even that pro-Putin or not as long as it's incredibly disruptive in a way and that's why I suspect they had Nigel Farage going very often to one of their shows why Katie Hopkins also went a few times and that was that I mean that was something I had a problem with when they're coming recurrently and instead of very often people who I think should be invited to go and comment you know, it's loud. But it's not as simple as that, is it? Because it's funded by the Russian government. What, what that means is, is if it's disruptive, then it's good for RT's line. What it means is, if it disrupts the British establishment, it's good for the Russian government. Quite, quite possibly, yeah. Of That's course, what I mean, they really It's not doing, disruptive it? to the Russian government in any case. So, yeah, of course, yeah. Whatever is disruptive within the liberal West, within, yeah, yeah. And so from that perspective, do you think it's right that foreign governments can own TV channels in Britain and and claim to be purport to be broadcasting the news? It's a difficult question in the sense that, of course, I think that if there is a, an attempt at, at being disruptive, one should be critical of it. But I also think that the same could be said about hell of a lot of other broadcasters and, and publishing groups, some of which are British. So, but in foreign places... I mean, I mean, you could say it's about the Daily Mail, but is the Daily Mail trying to be disruptive in Greece? You know, they're appealing to British readers, aren't they? That's true, although Russia Today could do that from Moscow nowadays. I mean, to, to be fair, it begs the question of why do they still have, you know, offices in, in, in London? I think from what I understood, they were closing down the ones they had in the States. I, I think now they've made a mark big enough for them to just... I mean, in fact, most of the studios are in Moscow, I should say, actually. Like, the, the, the offices here are a relatively small operation compared to what they have in Moscow. So can we really go and police that? What I'm trying to get at is I think we should try and, and, and flip that question on its head, which is we should really encourage both the media but also an audience that is critical about what it sees on TV, what it reads on the newspapers, and also try to encourage whoever it is, whichever publication it is, 
to do better journalism. Because if we're just going to start policing who can do what within journalism, it becomes incredibly problematic. There are other cases. When, when the, um, the Westminster uh, terror attack happened, again, there was a situation in which we just had to kind of like put out whatever there was that came first. And it really makes you think, should we really be putting these bits of news or supposed bits of news forward immediately? And I'm sure there were colleagues of mine at the BBC who were thinking the same thing. It's just that there will be a, a stronger, even legal team just behind them, which we did not have. Yeah. So what, you were publishing the stuff that was on Twitter? That yeah, was yeah, someone yeah, yeah. around with a gun around yeah, Central absolutely. London. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 stuff like that. I mean, interestingly enough... And NBC wouldn't tweet that. Probably not. You know, I, I don't have the answers to these questions. I just, I've just experienced them a lot as a journalist over the last few years. Define for me an RT-friendly contributor it's so broad it'll be anything from Nigel Farage to some Labour MPs but by definition if there's RT friendly contributors then there are non-RT friendly contributors is that because they didn't want to be on or is that because they were sort of unofficially barred from being on mostly because they don't want to be on so from when I started working there I would call people up for comment call people up and say who's this for say oh yeah I started working for Russia today sorry no I don't want to comment for Russia today and that's people's prerogative, you know, that's fine. But, but I would get that a lot. Did they tell you why? Because they just don't want to be associated with Russia today. Because by contributing to a story that might not even be about Russia or Russian foreign policy... They're legitimizing They're legitimizing somehow. it. Yeah. Which, if that argument follows through, then you were too. I suppose, yeah, that was the accusation I did. When I started working there, I had someone, uh, another journalist, you know, sort of troll me on Twitter, I guess for legitimizing and for spreading Russian propaganda. And at the time, I had to tell him, look, my policy is not to write things that would actually actively directly do that, so not to write on question, you know, topics on Syria and so on from this particular news angle. But also, you know, are you going to criticize everyone who then works for the Daily Mail and the Sun and, and everyone else because, you know, we're journalists needing to... Because, you know, I think this this colleague worked for Channel 4 and I said, look, I would love to get a job with Channel 4. By all means, get me a job and I'll get out of here. <laughs> it, which, in fact, was what happened. When I got offered a job as a freelancer but for uh, Paul Mason, I said, absolutely, I'm off. It's a lot like people saying that those working for, uh, you know, BP are allowing or you know allowing for the fossil fuel industry to continue I mean, people have to work and have to earn a living joanna romero you can find out more about her and read some of her latest journalism at joannaromero.com still to come our record of the week and alex fox is up next after this It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Just one-on-one, that's the way we do it, baby. Except when we're talking about group sex. It's time for the foxhole with Alex Fox. How are you doing, Alex? I am in awe of the fact that in eight seasons of doing this show, Ollie, Mm. I don't think we've ever called this the foxhole. 
What have you been up to this week, Alex? Just casually adding another award to my pile, Ollie. A Pulitzer? Well, pull something. <laughs> uh, I was very chuffed to be named, chuffed, chuffed up my chuff, to be named uh, ETO's Best Sexpert 2018. And congratulations, it is the Pulitzer of sex journalism. Uh, and what else have you been doing this week? Unseasonally, I went to an event called Christmas in July. Oh, you've been to one of those as well? Yeah. Which one was your one? I didn't know there was more than one. Oh, yeah, it's a whole thing. Every big company holds these huge events where they launch all their Christmas products, right? So I went to the Tesco one and the Amazon one this year. Oh, I see. This was a uh, uh, lots of different companies all together yeah, doing like the same thing. Fair. Yeah, yeah. So it's really weird, isn't it? Did you go? Did it? Was it? They give you Christmas stuff because they like show off their like. If you go to a food one, you get like the mince pies and the prosecco. It's bloody weird in a really hot day, walking around seeing all the Christmas stuff. Yeah, it was particularly sweaty time to be greeted by snowmen and fed pumpkin pie and candy cane flavored jelly beans and shots of mulled wine and goodness knows what. But the reason they do it is because magazines with long lead times are writing their Christmas issues now. Yeah, and I think that they are pitching to buyers as well, people who actually are responsible for purchasing the stock for various shops and websites. And so is there a sex version of those PR events? There were sex companies, yes. What did we learn? You can buy advent calendars with various degrees of toy in them. So you can have like the starter advent calendar that's got your basic cock ring and things like that in it. Or you can go for something more adventurous. I'm not quite sure what's behind window number 25 there. (laughs) It's a garden gnome for your rectum. Sure, whatever it is, it's what Jesus would have wanted. And what else might Santa be filling our stockings with sex-wise this year? Uh, There was a lot of emphasis on the finish and colour of sex toys. Uh, Lots were on display that had sort of a holographic oil slick effect to them so that you know that kind of bluey green shimmery iridescent finish okay time to take a question from you listeners uh, sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com well another christmas trend that i spotted at christmas in july was gin and tonic flavored lube mm. and if you want to accompany that with an alcoholic flavored condom then mycondom.com can sort you out they've got amaretto aka dicarono cognac Cockknackers, obviously, triple sec, triple suck, and quantro, cuntro. I mean, you put the extra work in, don't you? That's that's where the award comes from. Uh, the question is from Barry, our ambassador for San Jose, California, incidentally, uh, and he says because of the foxhole. I've been emboldened to try a few sex toys myself. So, Alex, my question is: Is the cleaning and powder kit that they try to upsell me at the sex shop worth it, or is warm soap and water and regular baby powder? Just as good. Well, Barry, I am very glad that I have indeed inspired you to uh, get juicy and juice yourself in new and innovative ways. And it sounds like you're talking about a very specific cleaning kit for a particular product here. Mm. The only sex toys I know that come with powder are male masturbators. So, you know, those uh, stimulating sleeves that you pop your uh, pop your schlong in and then use to wank yourself off with. But, uh, but thank, thanks to you, Alex. Inside. Yes, I do know those. I have three of them sitting on my office. Uh, well, some of them, in particular the ones that are designed to look like porn stars' vaginas or buttholes uh, and fleshlights, things like that, mm. are made of a material that's variously called cyber skin or hyper real skin or it's designed to feel and look exactly like real flesh. And it is moist. 
So the idea of putting powder in it feels like something you really wouldn't want to do. Well, that's the thing. You have to rinse them thoroughly. You actually can't use soap on cyber skin or you're, you're advised not to because it can deteriorate the material and, and uh, ruin that very realistic velvety feel over mm. time. So you have to rinse them thoroughly with hot water and give them a wipe as well. Some of them you can even turn inside out. Mm. Uh, and then dry them um, again very, very thoroughly. Certain ones come with a stand that you can pop them on. I mean, where are you going to display? that I'm not sure maybe make sure that it's not in full view when your mother-in-law comes over Um, but once they're dry you can use a microfiber or a lint-free cloth as well to wipe them down you definitely don't want little bits of fluff on your fake foof okay so all of that is stuff you can do on a budget isn't it none of this does seem to require the product that they're trying to upsell him well over time after you've washed and washed these items and you will need to wash them after every use they can start to become a little bit tacky and kind of lose that unique feeling lose that softness and this is where the powder comes in you sprinkle it on to uh, get rid of any excess moisture and rejuvenate that really luscious texture do you want to know what is actually in that powder though i think on behalf of the listeners yes it is absolutely nothing but cornstarch it's Ah. just corn flour so is this a bit like uh you know your hp toner cartridges or your nespresso capsules that actually you know it seems like the machine is cheap but actually what they're doing is they are trying to sell you the powder and the powder itself you could just get a substitute for well they put it in a kind of bottle that makes it easy to poof all over your poof Mm. but other than that it's just plain cornstarch so if you want to save a bit of money uh on your fake Cunny, <laughs> then you can just pop down to Tesco's or yeah. Sainsbury's. Uh, what, what and in San Jose? <laughs> Whole Foods or uh, Walmart? Well, Whole Foods would be entirely <laughs> appropriate in this case. You can just buy cornstarch. However, Berry asked, can he use talcum powder? Yes. That's a particularly interesting question right now, given that a jury in Missouri, that's a really nice rhyme, isn't it? Unfortunately, have ordered Johnson & Johnson to do something that they're not going to be very chuffed about they've ordered them to pay 4.7 billion dollars in damages to 22 women who claim that using the company's talcum powder Mm. their baby powder uh, has contributed to them getting ovarian cancer and if you're thinking about putting talc around your bits this might be something that you want to consider in any case cornstarch works probably better it's probably cheaper and absolutely has no risk that we know of. Okay, but are there any more high-tech ways of cleaning out your sex toy than using anything that's syrupy and in a bottle? Well, however you clean your sex toy should depend upon the material it's made from. Different sex toys require different types of cleaning. I suppose what I'm saying is, why hasn't Elon Musk done a self-cleaning vibrator? To get rid of the Elon Musky smell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's not his, but there is something similarly high-tech on the market. There's a number of companies that make sex toy carry cases that have UV generators inside them, and they'll essentially shoot your sex toys with UVC rays, kind of like a miniature sunbed I suppose for your sex toys some of them double as charging stations as well so if you have a USB rechargeable toy you can pop it in this box uh, rev up the battery uh, and uh, get rid of any germs and bacteria on it at the same time however 
for a start, they're very, very expensive. And a couple of people have raised the fact that UVC rays will only blitz germs on areas of the toys that they can reach. So if there are nooks and crannies or places that might be covered by shadow, um, then there's no guarantee that those will get um, suitably cleansed. I reckon that for most toys, good old hot water and perhaps an antibacterial spray maybe something containing triclosan if your body gets along with that and if you you know if you want to be ultra safe um, some people use a very low volume solution of bleach and then rinse their sex toys very well afterwards whatever you're using you should be making sure that you rinse them properly and dry them properly before you put them anywhere near your wet bits and reach every cranny before it goes in your fanny <laughs> Exactly. Every nook before it goes in your crook. We literally could keep doing this all day, but we won't. Uh, if you have a question of sex for Alex, uh, what do you need to do with it? Head over to our website, which is Modern Man with two N's, uh, and hit feedback. You can give me your name if you want, but you can remain anonymous if you'd prefer. And I don't know if they sell cornstarch, but they certainly sell sex toys. And you can get 15% off at mycondom.com when you use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E. Well, that is nearly it for this week's edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new joint manbassador. It is Maria and Mark from the Netherlands who say, Ollie, we have been listening to all your episodes. Jesus. During our camping trip to Brittany, France, at times we've been laughing out loud in our caravan and we have just bought you some beers. Uh, thank you, chaps. Now, of course, we already have a ambassador for Utrecht. That's Arnold. So I can only offer you a ambassadorship for all of the Netherlands except Utrecht. I'm sure you can sort it out peacefully. Uh, if you'd like to buy us a beer, just click Beer Money on our website. Music now and our theme is by Django Django from their self-titled debut album and we end as ever on our record of the week. This week it's this by the indigenous Canadian outfit no really known as Nehiawuk. It's called Somnambulist and it's out now. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.